Um, so we started last week, Josh started last week talking uh, about scattering. Uh, we started this conversation around where work and vocation and our sense of calling uh, fits into the ministry that we have. And if you were here last week, um, I've got to commend Josh. He did a brilliant job of beginning that conversation for us in terms of actually why do we work? Where does work fit into, uh, into our life and our faith? And so we want to continue on with that today. And I find it difficult to start any talk on vocation. It's kind of bred into me now. Uh, I find it difficult to start any talk on vocation without going back to uh, the movie Amazing Grace. Uh, It's a 2006-2007 film that was made about the life of William Wilberforce, the great uh, late 18th century, early 19th century social reformer and uh, and obviously a crusader to abolish the slave trade in the British Empire. Brad knows this well, but I must have showed this movie um, multiple, multiple times to senior school students, uh, probably a few too many times, to be honest. But it was just at that time where they were making choices themselves about career and and study pathways. You know, they were at that crucial moment where they're trying to decide, or at least start that process of deciding what they were going to do for the rest of their lives. Uh, And I'd show this movie to them because it, it depicts Wilberforce as a young, gifted highly talented uh, politician who's just starting to make waves in the British Parliament of the day when he's unexpectedly converted to Christianity um, after a profound moment that he has, an encounter that he has with God. But of course, this presents a significant conundrum for him. You know, does he actually um, continue to serve and use his significant gifts and abilities um, in the Parliament? Or does he give it all away for the sake of ministry? And one of Wilberforce's closest friends at the time is a guy by the name of William Pitt. He would later go on to become Prime Minister. Uh, And he takes it on himself to try and convince Wilberforce that he should stay in Parliament and continue to fight the good cause there. And so what he does is he sets up a lunch at Wilberforce's house and he invites around to uh, Wilberforce's house a bunch of anti-slavery activists And of course, over the course of lunch, they share passionately about the horrors of the slave trade. And in what is quite a poignant scene in the end, um, it all comes to a head where one of the key characters in the anti-slavery cause, um, a guy by the name of Thomas Clarkson, uh, turns to Wilberforce and he says to him, we understand that you're having problems, whether to do the work of a political activist or the work of of God. When another one of those people around the table, Hannah Moore, finishes the conversation by saying, we humbly suggest that you can do both. And really what they're doing is they're setting up uh, this question for Wilberforce, you know, should he continue to use his gifts and talents and passions in the parliament to serve the common good of the world? Or should he use his gifts and talents to serve God? And they're very simple solution to him is, we humbly suggest that you can do both. And it seems simple enough, doesn't it, that this doesn't have to be a a, a kind of a false divide, or it is a false divide, um, that, you know, we we can actually do both. That we can use our skills and our passions and our gifts and talents in a myriad of vocations to serve God's kingdom purposes in the world. But I have to admit, actually, just to talk personally for a second, I have to admit that like Josh talked about last week, this is something that I struggled with, particularly early on in my working life. 
And perhaps by virtue of the environment that I grew up in, my dad was a lifelong pastor, only recently retired. Uh, And so I grew up as a pastor's kid in that kind of environment. And so because of that, I kind of had this hierarchy of vocation. That right at the top of that hierarchy was becoming a pastor because there's nothing more spiritual that you can do than that. And then there was missionary and evangelist and you get what I mean, don't you? All the explicitly Christian vocations became at the top of the hierarchy and everything else filtered down around that. And while I initially ended up training as a teacher and becoming a PE teacher, and that's what I did to start with, it wasn't long in my own story before I found my way over to Sydney to study theology at a Bible college with the view to becoming a pastor because I was moving up to the top of the hierarchy, right? That's what I was doing. And so I did that for a few years, but then unexpectedly, this is cutting a long story short, I unexpectedly found myself back in the school environment and back as a teacher again. And so I would go back and forth for a few years trying to work out where I fit. Was I supposed to be a pastor or was I supposed to be a teacher? Was my calling to ministry or was my place in education? And I did. I asked Jane. I literally struggled with this back and forth for a number of years until I came to the realisation, or perhaps a better way of putting it, is I at least became comfortable with the idea finally that being called was not limited to the church. That the idea of of doing full-time ministry, if you like, was certainly not limited to work inside the church. And in fact, I think it's kind of uniquely placed me these days to just cheekily push back in the other direction slightly. I'll bring it up here, but Dr. Stephen Garber from the Washington Institute in the US points out that there's an intimate connection between our faith, our vocation and our broader engagement with culture. And his contention is that vocation is integral and not incidental to the Missio Dei, to the mission of God in the world. And I think what he means by that, at least in part, is that in our current cultural moment, as the voice of the church and of identifiable Christian leaders gets increasingly marginalised, gets increasingly kind of pushed out to the margins of our culture, God's mission continues through the vocations of his people. It continues through you and I who are kind of out there doing our thing week in, week out in our jobs, in the community, doing what we do in our lives. And while in many respects we live in what we'd classify now as a post-Christian culture, where pastors, sorry Keith, uh, where pastors don't have the same kind of voice or social standing that they might have had 50 years ago in the time of Billy Graham. God's mission continues through people of faith who are, are doctors and nurses and teachers and footy coaches and carpenters, as we talked about last week, small business owners, people involved in community service who are raising their kids, who are writing policy, creating art, designing buildings, mowing lawns and cooking meals. God's mission continues through you and me and that's certainly not to say that we don't need pastors absolutely we do we need missionaries we need evangelists we need people in those christian vocations in fact we kind of need a new pastor here don't we 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 need people in those vocations but the stuff that we're talking about here the understanding that the mission of god in the world goes beyond those traditional christian vocations opens up a world of possibilities for each of us to use our passions, our gifts, our intellect, our practical skills, the unique personality that we have for God's kingdom across the spectrum of society 
and culture. And it means that our passions and our gifts and our interests and our skills and those things that we love to do, whatever they may be, they're not a distraction, nor are they incidental to God's restorative mission. They matter. They're central to God's mission. And in fact, they take on new and significant meaning in God's kingdom project as we engage our skills and passions and interests for the sake of God's mission in the world. And I would love to say to you this morning that this is uh, something kind of new and you know, different and whatever, uh, but C.S. Lewis beat me to it uh, about 50 years ago. If anyone's going to beat me to it, it's got to be C.S. Lewis, right? Kind of clever. Uh, he wrote this in 1971 in a little piece called God in the Dock. And small words, I'll read it out to you. He wrote this. And again, you've got to kind of transfer this into modern day language. He wrote this 50 years ago, uh, but bear with him for a second. He says, I believe that any Christian who's qualified to write a good popular book on any science may do much more by that than by any direct apologetic work. We can make people often attend to the Christian point of view for half an hour or so, but the moment they've gone away from our lecture or laid down our article, they are plunged back into a world where the opposite position is taken for granted. Isn't that true? What we want is not more little books about Christianity, but more little books by Christians on other subjects with their Christianity latent. And then he goes on. He's our, our faith... I'll just pick it up partway through. Our faith is not very likely to be shaken by any book on Hinduism, but when, if whenever we read any elementary book on geology, botany, politics or astronomy or if I put it in modern-day language, any time we listen to a song or watch a movie or that Netflix show or whatever it may be, if we found that its implications were Hindu, well, that would shake us. It's not the books written in direct defence of materialism that make the modern man a materialist. It's the materialistic assumptions in all the other books. In the same way, it's not the books on Christianity that will really trouble him, but he would be troubled if, whenever he wanted a cheap, popular introduction to some science the best work on the market was always by a Christian. I think what that is, that's C.S. Lewis's 1971 way of saying that we need Christians engaged in every nook and cranny of our society and culture, in every vocation, in every aspect of, of the world around us. We need Christians living out their faith in those places and spaces. As I've set up here before, it's we need Christians living out their faith under the very noses of our broader culture so they can see what God's kingdom is all about. What we do with our time and our energy and our work is central to God's mission in the world. But it's also just, I think, really important that we pause to reflect again on how it is that we are to engage. Yes, we know we need Christians in every aspect of our society and culture, but how is it that we are supposed to engage with the world around us? Because I still think it's easy for Christians to be misunderstood. And again, if I can use politics uh, as an example, it's been fascinating to see a couple of articles come out over the last couple of weeks uh, about the new New South Wales Premier. Now, I know virtually nothing about New South Wales politics, so this is not a political statement at all. But one of the critical things is he's a Christian and he's got like seven kids, which is amazing in itself uh, as Premier. Uh, but he's a Christian. And when a Christian comes into public life like that, often the question comes back, uh, how is he supposed to represent all of us? 
if he's a Christian, he's got these certain views, how is he supposed to represent the broader public? But I think this is based on a false assumption. It's based on this very narrow assumption that to be a Christian at work or to be a Christian in public life means that their job is to convert the people around them or to impose a bunch of arbitrary Christian rules. That's what it means to be a Christian at work or in public life. And so hence the question. But we know, and we know at Richmond, absolutely, because it, it gets talked about here up the front time and time again, that God's mission, God's kingdom project in the world is so much more expansive than that. And it's exemplified by the bookends of this story, of the biblical story. We only have to have a look at the first page of the Bible and the last page of the Bible to get a sense of this broad expansive mission that God calls us to. Because our calling on the very first page of the Bible is that we are created in God's image, created to go into the world as God's image bearers, to cultivate, to expand God's garden of Eden, God's garden of delight to every aspect of our world to go into every nook and cranny of our society and expand God's garden of delight to those places. To love, to give, to be creative, to show compassion, to be kind, to protect God's creation, to demonstrate beauty. Ultimately, to to go into our world as culture makers, to imagine and create art and science and buildings and sport, business and policy and systems that bring life to people that bring blessing to people. And the very last page of the Bible gives us a picture of shalom, of peace, of justice, of wholeness, of flourishing relationships, despite what we experience now and the brokenness of our world and the pain and suffering and tragedy that goes along with that. Those are not the final words in our story. But rather we have a picture of shalom, a time when Jesus will come and heal all that is wrong with the world. A time of renewal, of ultimate restoration. And this should fill our lives with an acute sense of purpose now, everywhere that we go. No matter workplace, whatever workplace that we're in or community group that we belong to, it fills our life with purpose. Because we have been saved by Jesus, not that we might wait around and escape off this place one day, but that we might participate with God in his ultimate work of renewal and restoration in our world. If God has not and will not abandon this place, his creation, if God is redeeming and restoring all things, all aspects of our society and culture, then we as God's people must go into every corner of our world as agents of shalom. People who bring order out of chaos. We talked about that last week. Who bring life and blessing and creativity. Who foster flourishing relationships in every workplace, in every school, in every community group, in every footy club. You name it. That's where we go. That's the ultimate calling and vocation that we have. And while it certainly incorporates the work that we do, it's not limited to the nine-to-five job that we have. It's a whole-of-life endeavour, isn't it? Our calling and our vocation is a whole-of-life, whole-of-person endeavour. 
not limited to certain things that we do and certainly not limited to certain contexts or places that we might find ourselves either. And I think the Bible makes this really clear in a couple of locations as well, probably lots of locations, but a couple that I want to just draw your attention to very briefly this morning. One in Jeremiah, and we've talked about this passage before. In fact, I think this is like the passage at the centre of our Jeremiah project uh, that we roll out every now and again. And this is this idea. Uh, this was written into uh, a people who were in exile, the people of Israel who weren't where they were supposed to be. They weren't in the promised land. They weren't where they wanted to be. They were having a horrible, horrible time. And the message from the prophet, Isaiah, from prophet Jeremiah is to build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat what they produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. They were to live it out where they were. They didn't want to be there. They definitely didn't want to be there. But they were to live out God's life and creativity and blessing for the sake of the people around them, wherever they were. And we see this also in the New Testament. As the church begins to gather for the very first time and believers kind of come together from all these different walks of life, some were slaves, some were free, some were masters. Some were men, some were women, from different places and spaces. And the message from Paul is, nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is not limited to certain places or certain spaces or certain contexts. We are to live out our ultimate vocation and calling wherever we find ourselves. And in many respects, I think, you know, this kind of stuff is an antidote to the kind of career paralysis that some of us experience. You know, should I do this or should I do that? Should I stay where I am or should I be pursuing something else? One of the little things that has stuck with me over the years is just almost like a throwaway statement from a, a pastor in LA called Erwin McManus in terms of some of this paralysis that we feel as, as Christians sometimes about, you know, should I do this, should I do that? I'm not quite sure what I should be doing. Uh, he says, sometimes the most spiritual thing that we can do is just do something. We take our faith as image bearers of God, as participants in God's restorative mission, and just go and do something that represents that wherever you are in the world. And that's better than doing nothing. Sometimes the most spiritual thing that we can do is just do something. Also, I just wanted to... Um, Oh, I suppose, draw your attention to just a little thing that a, a, an old friend of mine by the name of Jeff Nagel uses to articulate some of the stuff I'm talking about this morning. And I think it's a helpful little thing to, to take away. He's got a little framework which is simply about be, do and see. Three really simple words to remember. Be, do and see. And he uses this more specifically in the context of leadership, but I think it actually works really well as we think about vocation and calling and what God has for us because often what we end up doing is that we focus all our attention on the do and, and I am absolutely guilty of this as well like I'm I like to focus my attention there too but we do naturally as human beings it's 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 about what we do and we focus our attention there but actually as we understand our be our being our image 
our identity as image bearers of God. As we focus our see, our seeing on the vision of God's future and how we participate in it today, then the doing kind of takes care of itself, doesn't it? Because if we look after our character, who we are, our identity, and we think about the vision that God has, the ultimate thing that we participate in, his mission, then we can take the doing part and we can do that anywhere. And that's not to say, and I probably should make a point of this, it's not to say that God doesn't call specific people to specific things at times. He does. But every single one of us, wherever we are, whatever context that we find ourselves, whatever nook and cranny of society and culture that we end up going, we can live out our calling as image bearers. We can participate in God's vision of the future, wherever we are, wherever we go. So if our ultimate calling, and I want to finish with this thought, if our ultimate calling goes beyond what we do, and it's actually a a part of who we are, then I just want to personalise this a little bit. For us to think about our own context, our own unique set of stories and experiences and how they shape us to live out this calling in the world. Um, Another one of my uh, old friends, a guy by the name of Mark Strom, talks about the fact that um, this process is actually about finding our brilliance. And the first time I heard him talk about this, I was was just a little bit dubious. It felt like a bit of, you know, pop psychology about us finding our brilliance so that, you know, we can feel warm and fuzzy about ourselves. It's not about that at all. It's about trying to find where each one of us uniquely shine. And what he talks about the fact is that every single one of us has brilliance, but actually not too many of us know what it is. Uh, And his big thing is that our stories hold the clue to that. You can do a million different, you know, personality surveys and gift surveys and all the rest, but actually it's our unique set of stories that hold the clue to the brilliance that we have. And this goes beyond, like I said, a kind of piece of pop psychology because what he talks about is the fact that our brilliance shines most brightly when we express it so that others might shine. It's most profound when it's others-centred. It's not a narcissistic experience. It's not about us feeling better about ourselves. It is about self-giving love for the sake of the other. Discovering how we might shine as God's image for the sake of others and the sake of God's creation. And again, because it's story-centred, it's not about necessarily just, just focusing on the positive stuff. It's not about listing our attributes or our strengths. Our special gifts and abilities are really crucial. As are our moments in life of success and delight and fun and all those things. But so too are our failures and our disappointments and our heartaches because they also uniquely position us to contribute to the world around us. And that's why our stories and our past experiences are so important. Because you might feel and we all might feel at times that our abilities might not be all that unique in themselves. But the way that we express them, who we express them with, and the intention with which we express them are uniquely formed by our own unique story. 
everyone's different in that sense. Everyone has got a different story, and therefore we're all uniquely placed to contribute to the world in different ways. And so discovering our brilliance, if you like, is about coming to a point where in all of our complexity, we can say, this is me. This is me. And this is how I'm going to contribute to the world around me. And we're not going to go into it now because we certainly don't have time. But I just want to encourage you with a little exercise to do at some point. Uh, This is something that I've done as part of conferences in the past and it needs some time. Uh, But think about doing something like this where you get an opportunity to, in a sense, map your stories, to think about the significant moments in your life, you know, moments where you felt particularly alive or had a sense of pride or joy about something that's gone on, moments where you've discovered people deeply value you, moments of deep connection or discovery of something new. Moments of frustration or difficulty or grief. The idea is to actually, the full experience, is to actually kind of do a little mind map, if you like, of those kind of experiences. So they don't have to be in chronological order or whatever, but just think about those significant moments. And the the kind of broad question is, what have been the significant moments in your life that have made you, you? And actually, a big part of this process is to tell that story to someone else. Where I've done it at times at conferences, it's been we spend some time actually going through this process. And actually, you go and you find someone and you go for a 20-minute walk and you just tell that other person your story from start to finish. No interruptions. That person's not allowed to say anything or do anything. They just listen to your story. And actually, it's in the process of articulating our story, those significant moments, that's super helpful in actually understanding who we are. And after that process of mapping out our significant moments, the things that have made us us, we go through a process where we try and name something. We try and name ourselves well. Uh, and I want to give you an example of this because I've, I've always loved this. This is what kind of Mark has shared about this, this process. He was invited by a principal of a school uh, in a really tough part of the city uh, to come and talk with um, some of the staff. And this school was really difficult. The teachers loved the kids, but there were massive behavioural management problems there. It was, it was a big issue and they were certainly in need of some transformation. And one of the staff members that talked with Mark was um, a lady by the name of Michelle. And Mark just asked her to share some stories about her experience in the classroom. And the story that she told first was the story of a really chaotic year three art class. Uh, and she, so she talked about the kids and, and they were having fun, but it was a bit all over the place. Like there were just kids everywhere and it was, it was chaotic at best. Uh, But at the same time, there were no kids kicking each other or biting each other. There was no throwing of chairs or anything like that, you know. Things were basically still under control. And the kids were still engaged with their learning. But nevertheless, she was apologetic because she hadn't followed the lesson plan. Things had gone off task. And in reality, the only way that she could name herself as a teacher in that moment was, I am a teacher who follows lesson plans. I am a grade three teacher. 
That's the way that she would name herself. Because in a sense, that was her, her assumption. That's what she was supposed to do as a grade three art teacher, if you like. But actually, Mark recognised that there was probably something more significant going on here. So he, so he pushed in a little bit further to ask her a few more questions. And as he did that, Michelle began to kind of rename that experience a little bit. She started to realise, well, maybe I wasn't off task at all. If this whole thing, if this whole teaching business is actually about student engagement, then maybe I was more on task than I've ever been before. And Mark just left her to go away and think about that for a little while. Mark came back to the school about a month later and she was so excited. She literally ran over to talk to him and she told him, I now know my name. And she said, I'm a teacher who paints with children. That was her naming experience. I'm a teacher who paints with children. And, you know, it sounds a bit cute. But it's also quite a beautiful image to think that here is a teacher that has gone from naming herself as I am a grade three teacher, I follow lesson plans, to I'm a teacher who paints with children. And this was not just a kind of a process, again, to make her feel better about herself or what was going on. This was about discovering her particular uniqueness, her brilliance as a teacher, this profound discovery of, yeah, this is actually who I am. She sensed that her teaching broke the norms, but she still couldn't name what she was doing when she taught at her best. But here's the great thing. Once she named it, once she knew it, she could be more deliberate about the way that she did it. And that's what this process is all about. By looking back at our story... By naming ourselves well, what we do is we open up new opportunities because we create a new sense of intention about the way that we contribute to the world. If we can say, get to this moment where we can say, I am one who, like Michelle does, I, I am like a, I'm at my best when, if we can answer that question and name ourselves well, what that allows us to do is go with new intentionality wherever we are. Again, whether that's in the classroom like Michelle, whether that's in the lab, whether that's behind the coffee machine, whether that's at the local footy club, whether it's in the community group down the road, wherever that may be, we can go out with intention and say, this is who I am. As an image bearer of God, as someone who's participating in God's restorative mission, I can take this unique set of stories that I have and contribute to the world around me. I can play my part in God's kingdom project in the world. So let me encourage you to, if you get a bit of time this week, go through a process like that. Because you are a gift to us and you are a gift to the world. Now, I've often talked about this before that, you know, sometimes, I, I know I did back in the day, you know, you do some gift surveys and you try and work out what, you know, what have I got to contribute and all the rest. But in reality, we come as a whole package, don't we? And we are a gift to each other. But it's as we discover our uniqueness, as we discover the part that we can play in God's expansion, expansive mission in the world, uh, that we can truly, as a community, come together, uh, build each other up, and continue, as the scattered church, continue to play our part in God's kingdom in the world. Here's where I'd normally pray, but I'm going to invite Caitlin up. Like Josh did last week with, with Mark, we just want to hear... Um, before we finish each week, from someone in our community 
that's doing stuff, that's working, that's kind of thinking through this at a practical level so that we can kind of think about, you know, what this means in each of our different contexts. So we've got Caitlin up here this morning. Love to have you with us, Caitlin. Um, do you just want to tell us a little bit? You're involved in a, like a mentorship program at the moment. Tell us a bit about that and, and how it relates to some of the stuff we're talking about in this series. Uh, normally, I don't get nervous to talk to you guys, but I actually am, so I've got written some notes. <laughs> um, so I've been part of uh, a SEED mentoring program over the last kind of 12 months, and um, it's going to go for another six months. Um, and the idea about SEED is that um, at the core of SEED is a view that every follower of Jesus is called to be an agent of redemptive change in this world. Um, and this looks like our story being deeply aligned with God's um, story in all of our contexts. Um, so the seminars, peer support, coaching, mentoring, um, a few face-to-face opportunities, um, which has been, yeah, really helpful to kind of unpack a lot of the stuff you've just said, understanding who I am, what's my purpose, what's my context, um, and, yeah, how I'm called to live that out in the world. So, obviously, that's been really important, um, and in your own work environment as well, how has some of this stuff kind of helped you to, to learn and shape your understanding about your place um, as a person of faith, but, you know, in a workplace as well? Yeah, um, I think being able to take a step back, um, I, I'm a purpose-driven person, I love looking at um, how can I, um, I guess, live my best life, and my best life doesn't look like my best life, um, but that's God's best life in me. Um, and so I think sometimes we feel like we're not um, exactly aligned to where we thought we were, and that's exactly probably what God wants us to do sometimes is, um, you know, so I, I'm working in HR, I don't have a HR qualification, I don't see that as my, um, you know, major career of my life, um, but I've learned so much through that. I've learned about working with people um, and working through difficult circumstances, um, working on change and, and how you can um, bring in God's focus for um, the world um, into that kind of process. Um, yeah, no, that's great. And can I ask you too, just, I mean, doing HR stuff, and it might not be the forever thing, but what does that, what does it look like? Just so, you know, we get a context as well for, you know, day in, day out. Um, what kind of stuff are you involved in? Um, so I have much more of a strategy-focused role. Um, I support tertiary students and early career researchers in a government organisation. Um, we've completely revamped that whole program. So coming in when there hasn't been a, a vision for what that would look like and what it would look like to train future researchers um, for 20 or 30 years, there's a lot of cultural change that has to happen. Um, and there's also a lot of change that people won't support. Um, and I think as a Christian in that context, I've been really driven um, to see change for a different purpose. Um, yes, we've got all of our business needs and it's really important to make sure that we're meeting all those goals, but there are so many other aspects of change and the ways that you create change um, that is so much more than just meeting business needs. It's making sure that an individual is cared for um, and feels valued and appreciated and respected and feels like they have value even though they're not an employee, even though they may not see, um, I may not see them ever or ever know their story. Um, and being able to bring that focus to this group um, is exactly why God, I believe that God placed me in that context. Um, and we were able to make some really significant changes, tangible changes, um, and push that through. Um, sometimes I don't know how, um, but that's kind of the magic of, of transformative change and redemptive change is that you don't actually have to know how, you just have to trust God that he can do that. 
Yeah, that's great. Um, I'm going to pray for Caitlin in a second, but I think that the last thing you said there, I think it's just brilliant um, in the sense that we talked about being an image bearer of God in terms of our vocational role today, but obviously the first page of the Bible also talks about the inherent value of all people. And so being involved in human resources just gives you a beautiful opportunity to live that out, doesn't it? So can I pray for you? That'd be great. And we're going to continue this process of, as I pray for Caitlin, uh, really I'm praying for all of us too in our different vocations that we've got, these opportunities that we have uh, as well. As we hear these stories from people, we recognise that every single one of us is in the same boat. We've got places and spaces that we go into uh, when we're not here uh, that give us an opportunity to live this out. So let's pray. Let me pray for Caitlin. Father, we just thank you so much for, for Caitlin for... Uh, sharing what she has this morning, we thank you for the, what she's learning through this mentorship program as well about her place within uh, just your, your big story, your expansive mission uh, in the world and what it means to be a person that's involved in uh, transformation and, um, and redemption in, in society and culture at large. We thank you so much for that. We, we pray for her role in HR as well and continue to pray for her involvement that she has with people and the opportunity that she has, in a sense, to, to live out her, her understanding of, of, of people, of, of human beings, the way that you've created them to be as precious, as valuable, as unique image bearers. Uh, may she be able to live that out day in and day out. And as she does that, under the noses of her colleagues and the people that she works for and with, um, may they be drawn into this understanding of who you are. Uh, so we just pray uh, again. We thank you for so um, that you've blessed us with, with a community like this where we can come together and encourage each other in what we do. That we don't just concentrate on what we do here for an hour and a half on a Sunday, but that you take us into every place and space around uh, this city, around the country, and hopefully someday again around the world uh, where we can live out your God's kingdom project wherever we are. We thank you that you empower us through your spirit and enable us to do that. And we commit all of this work to you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.